Well, good evening and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're giggling because we just had massive technical issues and literally solved them with seconds to spare. God is good and so we're glad to be with you in all honesty. Um, we are with you for the next hour. Reason for Hope is a live broadcast uh, dedicated and guided to your Bible questions. That's right. We are live and receiving your questions, questions you have on God's Word, the Bible, perhaps a verse or passage of Scripture that uh, you'd like kind of expounded upon. Maybe you're going through something in, in your life and would like a biblical perspective, um, world events, anything like that. We are here to humbly seek the Lord in his word with you and we thank you for being part of the broadcast today if you're listening to us on the radio um, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded but you can email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com that's questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com and we will get your question on our next show but uh, you can join us live 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 in many ways uh, reason for hope is a ministry of calvary christian fellowship of tucson arizona so you can find us at calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can watch us live there. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship. On YouTube, we are at A Reason for Hope. If you look in your app store on your mobile device for Calvary Christian Fellowship, we have an app. You can join us there as well. And also on Roku and Apple TV, multiple ways you can join us. And just send us your questions on the chat function in, in uh, those platforms, and we will get to those questions as the Lord provides time. Today with me in the studio is Pastor Sean Richards, as he often is. How are you doing today, Sean? Doing good. Definitely happy to be active and about. Yeah? Is, were, you, were you doubtful about that? Well, we were a few minutes ago. <laughs> You're right. You're right. The Lord came in in the final hour. And uh, also Pastor Peter Martin. We had a discussion about you yesterday, Peter, whether it's Peter or Peter, about a discussion about how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, it's great to be here with you guys and well, Peter, would you like to pray as we delve into our time together? Yeah, sure. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your love and your kindness towards us. We want to dedicate this time to you and to your glory. Help us to focus on your word and your truth and allow that to be the thing that guides the conversation. We're thankful for you, God, and we do pray for all those listening that they would be blessed by this time. In your name, amen. Mm, amen. It's true. All right. Yeah, so. so do I understand it's Apologetic Tuesday? Oh, yeah. Okay. You're getting the hang of it. Uh, that's right. <laughs> now, do for anyone who does, because I remember, you know, years ago, not knowing words like apologetics and all those kind of things, those fancy words. What is apologetics as we delve into that? It's a expounding on the word apologia, which means to give an answer. It's essentially the title's namesake, a reason for hope, but speaking in fancy. Back in the Greek days, that was what it meant, to give an answer, an explanation, not an apology as in you're explaining yourself as if you did something wrong, but just explaining yourself in broad terms. What did I mean by that? That's apologetics. What do I mean by what I believe? What do we mean by what we don't believe? And of course, what are the reasons for believing it as a reasonable belief? That would be apologetics. Very good. Very important to have that under our belt. Yeah. So what do you guys have for us today? Absolutely. So we're continuing our discussion on sola fide. We're going through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is just a Latin word that means only. So uh, when the Protestants, or you could call them the Reformers at the time, they didn't call themselves Protestants at the time, when the Reformers started to move away from the Catholic Church, they had five main statements that went against what they believed the Catholic Church was perverting in our faith towards God. So first one was sola scriptura, which means that scripture alone or the Bible only 
should be our sole infallible rule of faith when it comes to our relationship with God. Once again, this doesn't mean that the Bible contains all knowledge about all truth. It just means that everything we need to know about relating to God is contained in the scriptures. It is our objective standard from which we measure everything else. Uh, the next one is sola fide, which means only by faith can we receive the gift that God has done, which is also sola Christos, which means that only by Christ's sacrifice alone do we have access to God, and we, again, access that by our faith alone. And then sola gratia, or only by grace. So it is only God's grace that moves the Christian from the unsaved position to the saved position. It is not, as the Mormons would put it, uh, it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. No, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and therefore only God receives the glory, which is the fifth sola, uh, sola de los gloria, right? Only God receives glory for the salvation of man because God is the one who did all the work. So we've been going through, uh, we've been kind of combining the sola fide, the sola gratia, and the sola Christus, the idea of how is our salvation accomplished before God. We've been going through what are called the sacraments. Uh, the sacraments from the Catholic perspective are efficacious signs of grace. That's a very important word. What that means is that you obtain the salvation that God has provided to us freely through your work. So this is a refutation of both sola fide and sola gratia, right? It is not by God's grace alone, and it is not by your faith alone. It is your behavior, your willingness to participate in God's grace through the sacramental system. That is what gives you an eternal salvation with Christ. So uh, we went through the sacrament of baptism. We went through the sacrament of the Eucharist. And last week, we went through the sacrament of penance. Now, this sacrament kind of is a subcategory of the penance sacrament. It is called the sacrament of indulgences. Now, while indulgences do not save somebody, they do not actually do what the first three sacraments do, they are very important in keeping people out of what the Catholics would call purgatory. So we'll talk more about what purgatory is. And it is also important to know this was Martin Luther, who was kind of the spearhead of the Reformation movement. This was his main problem with what the Catholic Church was doing. He had a lot, 95 to be exact, but this was kind of his main thing. Uh, anything to add to the, what I just said before I dive in? Nope. All right, so this is once again from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I have three statements. They're a little difficult to understand. So I'll read one, and then I'll let you put it into layman's terms, and then I'll read the next one, and then we'll give our refutations to them. So uh, the first one says this, An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. So once again, it's not for eternal salvation, but it does have another purpose, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and of the saints. What does that mean? Well, essentially, it's treating the concept of sin as a debt owed and that can be paid off. And with the working assumption, one that we do not grant, of the church as the ultimate authority of what will satisfy your guilt before God, they then would say, we can prescribe you these indulgences to deal with these secondary 
faults and, of course, not mortal sins, but venial sins. They make the distinction, the scriptures don't, of the sort of things by their own authority that, of course, can be paid off. And that's what these indulgences were. If I committed or was planning on committing a area of sin in my life that wouldn't necessarily you know, be a red flag or a black mark sin against my record, but still would be something I'd have to confess before a priest. I could save myself the trip, save myself the Hail Mary, save myself whatever acts of restitution I would do by paying these things in advance and saying, if I were to sin, how could I make up for it? And that's what an indulgence was meant to communicate. This is the price that's meant to be paid for that. So go ahead I guess, and I'll see you back on Sunday. Now, the interesting thing is that last uh, statement, the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and of the saints. So from the Catholic perspective, there's a storehouse of good deeds that have been accumulated by Jesus and by the church itself. So Mary is a big kind of uh, proponent, uh, in their view, a big proponent of this treasury or storehouse of indulgences. So when you're buying an indulgence, you're literally tapping into this storehouse, this treasury, right? So it's like, you know, you need five bucks, and so you go to your neighbor who's a millionaire. That's the idea there. You got you got a minor bill that God wants due. You don't got the capital, so you give some sort of a transaction, give some sort of a monetary transaction to the church, and then they can apply some sort of righteousness to you. They could, through this indulgences, you can indulge God, and then he wipes away this sin. Now, what would happen if you didn't do this? And by the way, this can be applied to both living and dead people. Uh, so what happens if you don't engage in the indulgent system? Well, grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, and this is what indulgences uh, actually are pertaining to, on the other hand, uh, every sin, even venial, and before I go any further, what is, what are venial sins? That sounds weird. Yeah, I mentioned briefly earlier, mortal sin would be something that would put a mark against your record by the church. A venial sin is a sin that's not that. Right. So secondary sins, minor infractions, things that won't send you to hell, but definitely need answering for. Exactly. So uh, I, I think that in their mortal, their list of mortal sins, I don't think they've ever fully given uh, an exhaustive list. Not an exhaustive. But no. I think murder's on there, um, and I don't know. Are there any other like official ones that are on there? Premeditated adultery, uh, blasphemy of Mary and the Pope and so forth, denying the papal authority, and of course apostasy. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So we're not talking about those. We're talking about the other everything else, right? <laughs> we're talking about everything else. So what happens if I do any of the other sins, but I don't pay for it. What happens to me? Well, uh, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth, and that's what Sean was talking about with penance, going through the penance system, or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. These two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance, inflicted by God from without, but as a following from the very nature of sin. A conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. What 
does that mean? What is purgatory? What's being spoken of here? Again, it's painting a picture of basically what Islam makes out sin and righteousness to be. In Islam, and they borrowed this, of course, from Nabataean paganism and Persian as well, you have an angel on your right shoulder that gathers your good deeds and a a demon, a jinn, on your right left shoulder that records your bad deeds, your baraka and your bidda. If you accumulate more baraka than your bidda, then Allah can ultimately... uh, basically uh, put in arbitrary ruling that will give you a chance to cross a razor-thin bridge and climb a thread of rope that will hopefully lead you to Jenna, or what they refer to as paradise, and at any time Allah can knock you down. This is taking, of course, piecemeal from the idea of the featherweight of mercy in Egyptian paganism, and of course the idea of accumulating good and bad deeds as this sort of scale of worthiness is of course very common in Middle Eastern paganism, not Christianity. Now, when we're talking about this idea of purgatory being a necessary aspect of the unanswered for venial sins, the Roman Catholic, to their credit, would try to associate it with the needed sacrifice of the Old Testament for what we discussed yesterday in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that sins that we weren't aware of, that wouldn't ultimately and finally condemn us before God but still needed a sacrifice for, they'd say this is just the reapplication of it in the New Covenant. And as long as the book of Hebrews doesn't exist, then we're all good in applying that to us today. But the point being made is this. You have to essentially bring your credits and your debits, your sins and your good deeds into balance in the Roman Catholic view. And purgatory is how you either meet the Miro sum or the good deeds done by you or in your name will ultimately assist in that purging of yourself from the effects of those sins, from those debts. And, of course, this limbo-like state, not entering into paradise and being canonized as a saint, that's who they would deem as people that are basically in heaven, Right is the lack of a better term. Or, of course, the people who aren't yet sent to hell, they would prescribe this middle state because of a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15 taken out of context into essentially a summation of the afterlife for everyone who doesn't fit into a system they came up with later. Right. So, so <laughs> uh, one, one Roman Catholic put it this way to me, uh, it's the place where God hugs the hell out of you, right? So it's a, it's a place in which your sins, as Sean said, when your credits and your debits don't exactly line up, God actually puts you through a purging process that could last centuries, by the way. Usually. In which you are going to suffer for your venial sins, but eventually when it's done, when he hugs the hell out of you, you end up making it into heaven, right? Uh, now, as Sean said, you could apply these indulgences to family members. Now, this is why Martin Luther got so upset is because, you know, if you're a cynical person like I am, this kind of sounds like extortion because you'd have people going around saying, hey, well, how do you know that your family members aren't in purgatory anymore? And maybe if you gave some money, you would get them out faster. What kind of a grandson are you to let your sibling or you let your grandfather your grandmother suffer needlessly for hundreds of years when with just a small down pavement of 995 you can get them out today you know and by the way he's not exaggerating my father can attest to this tomorrow but my great-grandfather his grandfather i believe it was my great uncle note the familiar resemblance and association but he was traditionally catholic and they had a mass and they were advertising 
indulgences to help get your loved one out of purgatory. And my dad being a believer at the time was weirded out, but it's not, you're not joking. The instant, the introduction, I guess, of this indulgence system, we can verify historically, follow the money trail. It was meant to, and only established to uh, basically fund St. Peter's Cathedral. They needed money. They needed a taxation system, but they couldn't justify presenting themselves to the role of government, despite the feudal system being the only unifying role of all of Europe being that they all shared a common general belief in the God of Israel. They then established this system to make up for the lack of a taxation system. But note this point. When we're talking about the role of the church as a governing authority, that's what Martin Luther was challenging. If the Roman Empire was going to be reestablished and the Bishop of Rome was going to take a dual spiritual and political view, all more power to you. In fact, power established. That's the irony. But they were confusing the terms, using biblical terms, using biblical terminology to justify the claim to government without saying they're the government. We wouldn't question, Romans 13, the government's role in gathering taxes, but that's essentially all that this was. And now they have a doctrine to answer for, and answer for it they do. So Absolutely. And so there are a lot of well-meaning Catholics who are not greedy, they're not seeing this as a means of extortion, but they are, as you said, Sean, functioning off a system that had a very particular purpose, right? There was a reason why it got established, and they're now just spiritualizing something that was all too worldly and all too easily, easy to understand. Now, why is this a problem for us? So I'll I'll give you one passage, and I'm sure Sean will have another to kind of bring this point home. But I, I think that to put it to uh, people listening right now, because I don't think we have too many Roman Catholics listening right now. If there are, I hope this helps you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. But uh, for the Protestants out there, I think that even if we don't have an indulgence system, there are still feelings of insecurity before God, right? Where you're like, I know I'm saved. I know I have a relationship with God. But does God like me? Does God Is God just like really, really upset with the stuff that I'm doing? Because I feel like I keep screwing up. And I feel like I'm not really making much out of my life. How do I have that confidence? And a system like this would actually give someone confidence. They're like, oh, I could give this money. And then God kind of balances my credits and my debits. Well, how are we supposed to get that kind of confidence before God? Well, uh, as Sean said, in order to institute penance as well as indulgences, you have to ignore the book of Hebrews. So what better book to go to than the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That was a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. What essentially the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's saying, man, we we don't just have the right to be tolerated by God. We have the right to go to his house, right? When he says the, the veil that is his flesh, he's referring to the veil that separated the holy part of the temple with the holiest part of the temple, the place where God's spirit literally dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He's saying that Jesus has so separated, so uh, paid for our sins, that we can go into the Holy of Holies. And in fact, the Holy of Holies has come into us. The Holy Spirit dwells within the heart of the Christian as a guarantee 
that we have a relationship with God. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Man, you could have absolute confidence that you're not drawing near to God as to someone who's like, oh, gosh, I guess I got to let you in. This is kind of a bummer. I wish that there was a there was a way to extort you a little bit. No, no, no. You are drawing near to someone who is excited to have you in his house, right? Someone who died to have you in his house that wants you in there more than anything else. And he says that we have a sprinkling from an evil conscience. I love that. That if our conscience afflicts us, what's the problem? The problem is maybe my faith, my confidence in why I am righteous before God might not be in the right place. My conscience is sprinkled by what? The blood of Jesus and that alone, right? So once again, sola fide is only by faith. Sola gratia it is only God's grace. And therefore, what? Sola delos gloria. Only God receives glory for what he has done inside of our lives. Anything you'd like to add or clarify in that? Well, in addition to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20, it doesn't read that if our hearts condemn us, the church has provided a means of settling our hearts. It says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Doesn't pay all things, doesn't extort anything. It is understanding the reality regardless of our feelings. But then, of course, falling back from our feelings to reality, what are some of the biblical passages that would make the purgatory conclusion difficult? Obviously, we can go into the Apocrypha and the sticky business there in which they would make allusions to those sins being paid off after death. But let's just stick to the scriptures we have in common. The first and most important is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul makes a very blanket, true or false statement that we both recognize, where he states, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Physical death for the saint doesn't have this middle period. It's here or him, no other alternative. It's here or separate from him. That's the fate of the non-believer. So note that point of emphasis. If a Roman Catholic is going to say, well, you need to understand the entirety of Scripture and noting that that is a true statement, our ultimate destiny is, okay, well, let's just ask the process. You would go to 1 Corinthians 13, or 13, 3 and verse 15, where it would note, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. That is the only actual scripture they would use to justify this purging process, us being saved as through fire. The alternative interpretation, not one under the authority of the ecclesia, but of the scripture itself, notice the authority challenge here, is asking the question, what is the fire? Is it this mediated realm between us and standing before God? Well, let's read the whole passage and again note what it was discussing. This is dealing with sectarianism, Paul and Apollos, who is also a minister at the Church of Corinth, speaking to the church in this city, says, and this is after making an illustrative point about uh, fields, us being planted and Apollos watering and other people producing the fruit. But the point being made is then going from the illustration of farming into construction, he says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now note, nothing mentioned about the afterlife, 
Nothing mentioned even about judgment yet. It's what you're doing in this life, taking heed how you build on the foundation that was what? Paul laying out the gospel, them coming to a relationship with Jesus, while another one builds them up in that knowledge. No difficulty in interpretation yet. But notice this, and again, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, that is, which is Jesus Christ. So note that. But it says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or, note, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, that's the building material, our works, will become clear, for the day will declare it. Notice, not the century, not the millennia, the day, the moment will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Now the question then is, is it the day we stand before the Lord in light of 2 Corinthians 5, or is it the day we stand ultimately apart from this body and realize, oh, I got some uh, purging to do. Here's the point. The fire, which it will be revealed, will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, the gold, silver, precious stones, he will receive a reward See 2 Corinthians 5, judgment seat of Christ. That's how we interpret it. But if anyone's work is burned, wood, hay, stubble, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. We would interpret this as the person whose life has ultimately nothing to answer for, apart from the fact that they were saved from what they no longer have to answer for, what's been dealt with. How it's dealt with is either on the authority of Scripture or the authority of the church. The church would put itself above Scripture, and that is what we would challenge in saying, well, it's through indulgences, well, it's through purgatory, well, it's through anything that we have laid down with the authority that we have interpreted for ourselves. Great, but here's the problem. If I take this responsibility on myself, there's a benefit and there's a, I guess, a, a risk for bumbling. The benefit is truth is accessible even to the layman but it also has the risk of false doctrine, which is what the Roman Catholic Church, to their credit, want to avoid in all circumstances. But here's the problem. Is your authority as infallible as it claims? If I present this scripture properly and in context, you have no excuse. You can understand something that this guy can figure out. But if, on the other hand, someone with absolute power misinterpret something. You either have to say such a thing is impossible and deify them, or you're going to put your ultimate confidence in something that's a little too shaky to ultimately receive true comfort for your sins. And that's what we want to avoid. Not a counterfeit comfort, but a realization of the truth. Is it found in scripture or apart from it? And that's why we challenge cults with this claim as well. Anything above Christ, what do they say to do in your understanding of the scriptures? Legalism, who do they tell you to trust? Our cult acrostic. That is the problem. That is what the Roman Catholic Church, unfortunately, is putting forward if they promote this idea of indulgences and purgatory. That's why we challenge it, and that's why we want you to be informed about it. Don't, again, take our word for it. Check Peter's sources. And by the way, the quote that you gave concerning purgatory, that's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Can you give them the citation real quick? Uh, yeah. So uh, the main one I was reading from was 1472. Okay. So look that up. Talk to Roman Catholics about this. Look up and test the interpretation and context of 1 Corinthians 3, 
2 Corinthians 5, 1 John 3, and of course the passages Peter cited, and we'll all have a good time. But make sure that that is the heart that you bring to Scripture, not saying, well, the pastor said it, that settles it. No, I want to say God's Word settles it, and that's worth trusting. Why? Well, that's what this broadcast is for, to give you reasons for putting your hope in that source. I believe it stands on far more authority than the history of humanity, whether in the name of Christ or apart from it, and I hope that you do as well. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We hope that um, helps you out and equips you. Thank you for sharing that. I had a question. Um, Robert, I saw your question. You were first, but I guess ladies first is a question from Monica, which is somewhat <laughs> related, so I'll just jump to that. Monica asks, I have a question, please. Why is uh, the Catholic Church so vehemently, good word, uh, against the rapture and end times eschatology? Um, it's They're generally... I mean, no more than Protestants are. There are reform circles that are prominently into what's called um, either amillennialism or postmillennialism. That is, that the rapture is either non-existent or that end times is just kind of above your pay grade and you need to just focus on the here and now. Uh, other groups in Calvinist circles would be 100% on track with what we're talking about here. They wouldn't deny the rapture at all. They might have differences on its timing, but it needs to be addressed on an individual basis. Uh, Roman Catholics are people, and they're, by the way, not as unified a denomination as they like to advertise themselves to be. There are many different sects of Roman Catholicism that would also differ not just in their views of the end times, but of these times as well their view of the church and its authority, their views of the relevance of scripture and so forth. Just like Pentecostals are very experienced based, there's Catholic strains that have that sort of approach too. So if I were to speak for all of Roman Catholicism, <laughs> that would be my first mistake. Yeah. The second clarification I would make is, again, since Monica's asking the question, uh, why is it that any Roman Catholic would hold a position in, in uh, I guess, iffiness towards the end times, and the simple answer is because their authority is based on what their priest is handing to them. And if he has a belief on something, that's your belief. That's how the church is structured. The authority of the church is the final authority, and if someone speaks in the name of the church, they're speaking in the name of God. So if he doesn't agree on an interpretation of the end times, you are mitigating damage, I guess, in our ballpark. I have a weird view then you can just say, that guy's a weirdo. But if I'm a priest, a representative of the ecclesia, well, then it's gospel truth, and anyone who says anything otherwise is a heretic. We don't function that way. There are people with that attitude, but that's another issue as well. Um, you'd have to talk to them individually, but understand that the majority of Roman Catholics, and again, even legitimately saved ones, by the way, would have an approach to God that is more structured. And God bless them for it. Some people just are wired that way, and they need that kind of structure. Otherwise, their fallenness can manifest in other difficult ways. There are other people who go full ham hock into the traditions, and that's when we'd say you're in Coltville, but the same would be true for Protestants. So the case needs to be taken on a person-by-person -person basis. If they trust their pastor, again, iffy, but not heresy. If on the other hand, they'd say, well, I haven't really looked into it. Again, lazy, but not heresy. <laughs> if they say, uh, you know, I looked into the matter and I have this and this view on it, secondary, not heresy. So that's how I deal with that, Monica. Anything more to add, Peter? Yeah, that's good. Oh, right. Great. Monica, thank you for your 
your question and being part of the broadcast. We appreciate that. Question from Robert. Back to you, as I promised we, we would. This is a question on First Chronicles 28, mm. um, if you guys want to get your head around that. He said, good evening, my brothers from another mother, but from the same father. He says, I like that. Thank you. Amen. Slogan hearing. <laughs> That's right. My question is from First Chronicles 28 about how David was told by the Lord he would not build God a temple. And in verse uh, 3 it says, but God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Could, uh, could you maybe expound a little on why God would use these words calling David a man of war, which shows kind of a negative uh, context or ne negative sense um, because there were many men of war back then in Israel, please expound a little on this. Thank you and God bless. Yeah, the men of war idea wasn't the negativity carte blanche. The negativity was if you're going to be a man of war, great, but that's not the kind of man I'm going to use to build my house. God's allowed to hire his own contractor, if you will. But um, taking it, I guess, a step further, David uh, in First and Second Samuel wasn't just a man of war. He fought some uh, pretty weird wars, didn't he? Yeah, no, he did. So uh, there are, as Sean alluded to, there are actually a couple different ways to interpret this. Uh, one would be, as Sean said, God is not allowing David to build the temple because of the type of warfare that he fought. Now, that seems to be a pretty consistent interpretation because Solomon fought wars, and yeah. Solomon was the one who ended up building the temple. Uh, the type of fighting that David did was not only the conventional type, which was good, right, against the Philistines and things like that, but he also spent a good portion of his life as kind of like a pirate, a little bit of a mercenary kind of a guy where he was running around actually in Philistine, right? He was actually receiving shelter from the Philistines, and he was going out on raiding parties and killing people and capturing war booty. And so, note, he was attacking groups that were unjustly terrorizing Israel, but under the pretense of fraud, reporting to the king of the Philistines that was paying his rent at the time, hey, we attacked their fellow Israelites. And he said, you're a man after my own heart. And he's like, I don't like that title. Yeah. <laughs> and David honestly almost went to warfare with his Israelite brothers yeah. if God wouldn't have supernaturally intervened. Uh, it could also be referencing the fact that David ended up killing Uriah unjustly mm -hmm. during the time that he should have been at war with his troops. He stayed home, which was already bad. And then he ended up having an affair with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah, her husband, to try to cover it up. So it could be reference to that. Yeah, it's a um, translation of the term man of war. It would be, in some cases, a man of blood, that right. you have blood on your hands. And right. again, Solomon, he had a lot of... Uh, things to answer for himself as well, but not yet. And right. that's the point. Right. And when he was building the temple, he was actually doing pretty good. Right? <laughs> so he has the, the highlight of his career. But uh, the other thing it might be referencing is the fact that David had to fight a civil war against his own son. And once again, that civil war was brought about by a big part of his incompetence, a big part of his unwillingness to exercise the law in his own home, which is not very good. So that that's the most likely interpretation of it. Uh, there are some people who might interpret it in light of, I don't really agree with this interpretation, but I think it's interesting. They would interpret it and say, well, it's because of the picture of the two comings of Jesus, right? So uh, Jesus comes the first time and he doesn't really have an established kingdom or anything like that, and he's building it, uh, but he doesn't actually establish his temple on the earth yet. He does it in his second coming. So David uh, kind of 
reflects Jesus's first coming in the fact that he's building the kingdom, which is what David has to do if you look at his career. Israel's kind of not in great straits. He has to unify it and hold it together for most of his career. And then he, uh, and then Solomon kind of comes in as a victorious king, and you read the first couple chapters of Solomon's rule in the first couple chapters of First Kings, and you're like, wow, like this is awesome. You know, like he's, it is like the reigning of the king. It's, it's really cool. So Solomon would be reflective of Jesus' second coming. Uh, and again, if you read the beginning, the very beginning of Solomon's reign, it's pretty bloody, right? He has to deal with some dissenters very quickly, and then he establishes a very beautiful kingdom. Yeah, in and outside his own family. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that is another viable interpretation, but um, I, I don't agree with it. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, for your, for your question. We appreciate it. I have a question come in through YouTube from There Out There. I'm not sure that's your uh, given name. <laughs> uh, uh, the question is, and thank you, thank you for your question and being part of the broadcast. Uh, John often uses light for God, the gospel, truth, etc. I'm especially interested in his usage of light and darkness in First John. I've heard that First John was written in part as a response to uh, Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, is John's theme of light and darkness something that would have resonated with Gnostic thinkers? If so, in what way? Thank you. Uh, in conflict, and again, that's the point, Gnosticism was one of the first Christian cults because of two fatal assumptions. First, that uh, Greek culture, as they understood it, had this underlying assumption that the flesh is evil, what's done in the body is evil. And again, not all Greeks, but particular strains of Greek philosophy emphasize this. And of course, that the spirit is good by nature, that there is no such thing as a bad spirit, there's only a bad body. So in order to justify these interpretations, they would take spins on Scripture and, of course, put this forward as their authority, not because it's plain in the text, but what Gnosticism means. Think like the silent G, it starts with an N, but it's got a G in there. It's the hidden truth. And if you have our spiritual insights, then you can access this hidden reality. And then, of course, there were Gnostic Gospels. The earliest that we have record of is the Gospel of um, uh, Thomas, right? Thomas, thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most prominent of which was the Gospel of Judas. And, of course, building on these ideas of aeons and eons, that the God of Israel was this evil God because he involved himself with physical matter, and that the true God is so detached from us that there's no way for us to even conceive of her. And what's interesting as well is that uh, Jesus was in rebellion against the God of Israel who was involving himself in the physical, and Jesus' goal was for us to achieve a spiritual uh, dis association with this world to escape from this evil God's clutches. And if you want to see that kind of twist on scripture, uh, this isn't a recommendation, but this is an opportunity for you to see false doctrine in action. Look up the Russell Crowe remake of Noah. That is based on the Gnostic account and retelling of that, where Satan is actually the good guy, because he wants Adam and Eve to rebel against that evil fleshly God. Mm. And the Nephilim, or whatever those things were, uh, were glorified <laughs> the when, <fallen> they, ones. <laughs> yeah, when they destroyed their physical bodies. That's the mindset. Now, if we're going to make John's point of emphasis that God dwells in light or that the gospel is light as opposed to darkness, what John is doing and how that would have flown in the face of the Gnostic thinkers is because not it was conflicting with their assumptions, 
it was pointing them back to Judaism and the Jewish understanding of what God was like. And the reason why they would use light is because the Old Testament prophets would constantly use light as this picture. For example, in uh, the Psalms, Psalm 104 and verse 2, it describes the Lord as one who wraps himself in light as a garment, and he stretches out the heavens like a tent. Obviously a symbolic picture, but if you want a more literal one, read Exodus 33, where Moses requests of God, show me your glory, and he says, no one can see me and live. So hide behind this rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand and just pass by. You're not going to see me. You're going to see my afterburn, essentially. And it made Moses go nuclear for a week. So the point being made is God's glory is so unapproachable in its light that it would impact the foundations of even the Jewish understanding of God, which the Gnostics were not. (laughs) They were Greek approaches to Scripture, not Jewish, that uh, Paul the Apostle made this observation in the book of First Timothy chapter 6, and I believe it is in verse 16. Um, I'll start in verse 15. He says, He will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, reference to Exodus, or can see. Note the Gnostics and their thinking of true spirit to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So to there out there, the Gnostic approach to Scripture assumes Greek philosophy. The approach that John is making towards Scripture was the approach that all of the early church fathers did when they were challenging the Gnostic claims. They would just take Scripture and write it out. And actually, from their quotations, this is a little bit of an aside, but we can reconstruct pretty much every verse of the New Testament with, I think, 11 insignificant verses as the exception, uh, based on their quotations alone. We can turn out all of our manuscript evidence, just go off their quotations between the first and the third century. We have the Bible. But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that was their response. They went back to the Old and New Testaments. They said, this is the plain statements. If you're going to throw your spin on it, keep talking. Your audiences are going to get tired of it but the plain statements do stand on their own merit. So when John was challenging Gnosticism, it was the same way Paul was. It was the same way Peter was. It was the same way Jude was, same way James. They quoted the Old Testament. They made reference to not that evil Jewish God, but the same God that was revealed in Jesus Christ. That was how it would have been understood and why they didn't like it. Yeah. No, I... I really like this question. I, I, I like all the questions we get, but ones about like themes and stuff like that within the Bible, I think are really fascinating. So uh, I want to add a little bit to Sean because I just, I like the question. I could, I could leave it there, but I think this... Uh, Sorry, we don't have any more time. A, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's actually a lot more we could say about. I mean, we could I honestly just go through every passage in which John uses a reference to light and talk about what the context is and why he's using it. So I'll just give you two more because I think this is a fascinating topic. Uh, this is First John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So 
one of the things that Gnostics also believed is that you were saved not through the sacrifice of Jesus, but actually through kind of a Platonistic thought, right? So you that's why they called themselves Gnostics, right? The, the word gnosis, G-N-O, as John put it, the silent G, is the Greek word for to know or knowledge. So they thought that their knowledge was saving them. They're very much the academic kind of influencers, influencers that we see today, that they think it's their great intellect that's making them saved and therefore a means of saving other people. So for them, the concept of sin, confessing sin, being humble and admitting fault wasn't really something that they did, right? It was something that it's kind of like, again, modern day politicians and uh, academia types, they, anything they do wrong, they word it in a way in which, oh no, actually that was totally correct, right? And you, you're wrong for calling me wrong, right? That kind of absolute arrogance and inability to admit fault. It was something that was very much present within the Gnostic gospels. Cause again, they didn't think they needed any type of savior. So when John says, we got to walk in the light, man. We got to just be honest, right? We're a mess. That's why Jesus had to come for us. That would have been very offensive to them because he's calling them out. He's saying these guys are liars, right? They're presenting themselves as perfect. They're not perfect. They do have issues in their life. They're just not showing you what they are. And he's saying, but the body of Christ needs to be better than that. We need to be people who are intimate through confession. And uh, me and Sean talk often about how confession is a lost art within the church, unfortunately. Uh, the second thing, which is also very interesting, in the next chapter, he says in verse 9, he who says he is in the light, I'm sorry, uh, not verse 9, uh, verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true uh, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why that's so important is because he's saying, how do we know the deep things of God and the universe, right? So the Gnostics would say, well, we learn them by contemplation. We sit in our private rooms and we think deep philosophical thoughts, and through contemplation and deep pondering, we're discovering the divine things. And John says, you know how you know God? Jesus revealed himself to us, and I knew him. He was a guy, you know, and we hung out, and we ate together, you know, and I was able to, to talk to him. And, you know, he, he talked to other people. You may have known him. And so what he's saying is that the, the obviousness of God is available and accessible to everyone, right? So another thing that academic types like to do is they like to present themselves as, again, saviors of the world. And you're, you're never going to know God unless you get in our program, man. And that's just too simple. You think Jesus just loves you? And that's like, no, 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 there's much more about the gospel than that. And you need, to, you, need to, you need to really think about this stuff, right? So that's what academic types are always doing. John is saying, no, no, the, tr- the light's already shining. Mm-hmm. Jesus came into the world. It is, his coming is verifiable. His words are easy to understand. This is, again, why the Pharisees and the intellectuals hated Jesus, because he spoke in such an accessible way. Right, he spoke in parables. Like Isaiah before him. Right, exactly. Just a very, very accessible way. And they're like, oh man, like this guy, just like Isaiah, it's just word upon word and precept upon precept. In other words, the guy's just like quoting the Bible. Where's the fun in that? You know, like he's just talking about these really simple truths that anyone can understand. And if you remember in his in his coming, Jesus said something really interesting. He said, Lord, you have hidden these truths from the wise and discerning, but you have revealed them to who? 
babes. The babes, right? So the the, the young, the the innocent, the the uneducated of the of the day, the uneducated, you know, if you want to put it that way, like the the people that just had no business in these academic large facilities. So th- this type of t- speaking was offensive to the Gnostics, right? They're like, no, the only people who are going to be saved are the really, really smart people who sit around pondering these deep thoughts. And John's like, no, the people who are going to be saved are the people who know Jesus. And to know Jesus is actually very simple because he loves them and he wants to have a relationship with you. And he's revealed himself to you and you can know him at any point. That type of simplistic gospel message was very offensive. So he's using light uh, to show, because again, as Sean said, it's like, oh, it's a hidden truth in the darkness and the shadows that you need to discover. John's like, no, it's obvious. It's like the sun in the sky. It just smacks you in the face, right? <laughs> Anyone who thinks otherwise, they're lying to you, right? So uh, yeah, very good question. Great question. Thank you for it. You got Peter all worked up. That was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a, um, uh, just remembering a, a, like a documentary, and uh, the premise of it was that um, children are we we program children to be racist like we we imprint (laughs) that on them and they did an experiment with uh, kids where they had a basically a card and it had a simple picture of a a man it was like almost like a a restroom man you know stick figure and it went from a white man to to black and then shade kind of shades of gray and they asked these young kids like which is the good kid and they point to the white one like who's the bad kid the black one you know who's the the thief or the black you know see children we 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 teach them racism and i was like no it's obvious even to a kid that light is good you know and darkness is bad Mm. you know that's if there's something that's imprinted it's that light is you know if they've got to choose between a white and black you know image of a man well they're going to choose the darkness as being the bad thing you know right. so and, i was kind of plus for those listening on live stream um if we're going off of skin tones this isn't white this is called melanin uh, this i'm holding up a white piece of paper is white if i was this color <laughs> you'd be calling the police or at least an ambulance you'd be saying help there's a white man here he needs help right I mean, we're not far off either of us, I think, as far as skin tone. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I look like Nosferatu sometimes. But the, <laughs> right. that reminds me of a, a quote. Uh, this is from David Bentley Hart uh, from his book, "The Experience of God: Being Consciousness and Bliss." Really deep book, but very good. Uh, he says, "Wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience." Now, the, the main reason Send why he again, says please. that uh, <laughs> wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. It's one of my favorite nice. quotes. Yeah. Now, what it means in layman's terms is what he really believes, and I believe that he is right, is the most fundamental aspects of reality are inherently understood as kids. Mm-hmm. And then later on, different structures kind of actually pollute you into thinking a different way. Mm-hmm. And you have to recover your innocence at the far end of experience. So uh, uh, one of my favorite books is actually Huckleberry Finn. Mm. And I really like that book because what it does is it shows the kind of ridiculousness of racism and slavery through the eyes of a child. Mm. Right. So you see Huck and he's if you read the book, it's, it's a very good book, but he pays deference to these adults in his life. And he calls two of them are hucksters and they call themselves the Duke and the King. And he ends up having a weird relationship with them. But he just has this weird idea of like, man, all these adults think this is right. All these adults think that, you know, black people are not uh, equal to us and they deserve to be slaves. They must be right. They must be correct. But there's something in him that just sees the obviousness of the fact that Jim, his friend, is a human being and he can't fight that obvious truth. 
And by the end of the book, he's like, I, I don't care. I'm just going to set this guy free because I know it's the right thing, mm. regardless of what all these adults are telling me. So mm. uh, Paul plays on this as well. The obvious things, right? The obvious truths within the world are not these hidden, crazy truths, right? Mm. How many kids really need to be indoctrinated to believe that there is a God out there that loves them, mm. right? You, you have to really try to get a kid to believe that there is no higher power that cares right. about them. Um, Which Jesus had strong words for. Right. So, yeah. you know, how hard, how easy is it, it is to, to teach a kid that people are just equal in dignity, mm -hmm. right? Very simple. How hard is it to teach a kid that people are unequal in dignity and need to be discriminated mm -hmm. upon? Uh, very difficult. Can you do it? Yes. <laughs> people are doing it right now. Uh, but it's a very difficult thing. So that's, that's the idea there, that the, the plain and the obvious are the things that are most true. And we need to learn how to separate that innocence, that naivety, into true wisdom. And, and so again, I'm going to read that quote because I just love it so much. Mm. Wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. Mm. Wonderful. All right. Um, Great discussion. Been a bit since we've done our contradiction of the day. Want me to give us one here? See what the atheists have for us? Sure thing, yeah. Yeah, all we're right. about five minutes left. This, this hour's gone really quick. Yeah, all right. Uh, apparently, the Bible contradicts itself on the fact that Moses was a good speaker. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, it says that he was a good speaker. Peter, could you verify? I'll turn to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, where the Bible definitively says that Moses was not a good speaker. Now, I'm sure those of you listening can already tell if you're familiar with either one of these verses that they're trying to pull some sticky business here. But let's just take their, um, I guess, follow the first step of dealing with a Bible contradiction is first knowing what a contradiction is. Then step two is to call their bluff. Now, let's do this in reverse because we haven't done it in a while. When it comes to a contradiction, Obviously, they make the claim, they have to provide the proof, but this is atheism, morality is subjective. So let's ask the question, does uh, the book of Acts specifically say that Moses was a good speaker? I believe the context of this was Stephen's sermon, was it not? Uh, absolutely. So this is Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of, Egypt, of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Okay, so not in plain language, a good speaker, but he was educated right. so far. Right. So, so not, not necessarily eloquent, but he understood the wisdom of Egypt. All right. right. So let's at least take that at face value and say it could be suggested that Moses was a good speaker. Whereas in Exodus chapter 4, and noting their citation, because sometimes they don't even get this right, they would say in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent neither before or since uh, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, obviously, we can say, okay, what comes out of your mouth and what's going on in your head are two different things, but let's even just take that at face value. Both passages present the statement, as they set it up, Moses was a good speaker in Acts. Moses claims he is not a good speaker in Exodus. Can we already tell there's a problem? Well, this is the key. What is a contradiction? A contradiction, first step in answering these sort of objections, understand what it is. It's a violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So if Acts chapter 7 and verse, uh, what was it, 22? Mm -hmm made this point that 
Moses said to the Lord, I am eloquent and fast of speech. Then we would have a problem when reading Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, where it says the exact opposite of that. One of those things could be true, unless the context would suggest Moses is lying, which not necessarily. We know this is the first of three attempts where he's just trying to get out of something. That's a hint in of itself. But is this a contradiction? And the answer is no. The person who leveled this accusation is counting on you not knowing what a contradiction is and citing two passages that most people aren't even willing to look up. So the two ways you respond to a contradiction is to beat both assumptions before they're even made. First, know what a contradiction is, a violation of the second formal law of logic. Then, call their bluff. Go to the verses they cite and say, can these both be true in some sense? And if they don't allow that, then they don't know what a contradiction means. We want to be those who know what we mean, which is why we titled this program a reason for the hope that is within you, not a weasel to get you out of hope. So, we got Thank you. 30 seconds. Yeah, we do. Anything to add to that, Peter? Any last thoughts? No. No, it's good. Cool. It's been a great, been a great hour with you guys. Hey, um, thank you for joining us on the broadcast today. If if you're looking for a, a, a church to fellowship at in a uh, Tucson area, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, that's where uh, this uh, show is originating from. It's a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'd love to see you tomorrow night, Wednesday evening. We have a service at six thirty. We have no interest in poaching you from another church. <laughs> An old pastor of mine used to say that's like moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic. But uh, if you're not fellowshipping somewhere, um, you'll be more than welcome to come and hang out with us here at 6.30 p.m. tomorrow evening. Thank you so much for being part of the broadcast. We will see you next time, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. We are here. Same, same places, different faces. I did it again. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.